Hey, welcome to Potomac Hills. I'm glad you've joined us this Easter morning. This is our fifth week meeting all over Northern Virginia as a church distributed. We're blessed to be able to meet this way, especially on this day. We've tried our best to make this Easter service meaningful to you. So before I start, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16 and listen carefully as I read our scripture passage for today. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to hope and not to fear. Life in a coronavirus world is getting scarier by the day, and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We live in a time of fear and sadness, knowing we should rejoice on this Resurrection Sunday, but perhaps we're finding that hard to do. We need Jesus. We need the risen Savior. We need the hope that Easter brings. So help us to see Jesus in your word this morning. Help us to see the glory of God and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, speak through the Gospel of Mark this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, like us, a number of churches are celebrating Easter online this morning. Many are on YouTube, some are on Facebook, others are live streaming, some are meeting on Zoom. But I read one comment this week that said if you want to make your Zoom Easter service more realistic, it should probably only include women. The meeting should start before daybreak, and the women should be cloaked in fear and sadness, although not a few may be plotting how to overthrow the empire. So let's put ourselves in their dusty sandals on that early Sunday morning so long ago. It's time to invoke the imagination. Daylight spread slowly across the sky. Away to the east, beyond the towers of the temple and the adjacent Roman fortress, the sun rises above the horizon as they make their way out of the city gate. Already at this early hour, there are people moving about. Here, business starts at daybreak. But these three women have business of their own. Last night, they pooled their limited funds to buy the spices needed to prepare a body for permanent burial. Just a couple of hundred yards beyond the gate, 
the body of someone special awaits their attention. They have had to wait until now because of the Sabbath. Everything stops for the Sabbath. And only when yesterday evening came could they get a hold of what they needed. And only now, Sunday morning, can they make their way to the tomb. The weather is warm. He's been dead for over 36 hours now. They really can't wait any longer to honor their dead master. All three of them watched him die on the cross, that moment of death on Friday afternoon when he cried out, and two of them observed the hurried burial nearby. They saw Joseph and the others rolling the great stone down its slot. They heard the thud as it reached its resting place in front of the doorway. That, they know, will be their problem. As they walk the last few yards, they're asking each other, how in the world are we going to roll the stone away again? They know these tombs are made to be easy to close, but hard to open. They may have to enlist the help of some people passing by. They have to get in somehow. And that thought brings them to the old quarry, where a number of tombs have been cut into the face of the rock. Here's the one. It's rather grander than the others. After all, Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy man. The tomb has an outer chamber. Beyond it lies the burial chamber, sealed by the stone. But here comes the shock. As they enter the outer chamber and come face to face with the tomb itself, to their utter amazement, they see that the stone has already been moved. It's been rolled back. And even more shocking, there's someone sitting just inside, waiting for them. He doesn't seem all that surprised to see them. But at the sight of him, they're terrified. In appearance, he's a young man robed in white, but a white that can be clearly seen even in the darkness of the tomb. It's disturbing enough to find the tomb open and someone inside, but they're way past surprise. It is dread. It is terror they feel because they recognize this is no ordinary young man. This is an angel of God. This is an eruption of heavenly glory into their gray world. What can the messenger of God be doing here inside a grave? The words he speaks in verses 6 and 7, words which will transform their lives forever and add astonishment to their fear. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said. The women didn't need another invitation to back out of the tomb. The encounter with the angel, coupled with the stunning news that Jesus is not here, leaves them trembling with fear. Their heads are spinning as they run back to the city. They careen down the streets, now filling with people, heads turning at this unusual sight of three women running full speed down the street. But they utter not a word until they've done what the angel told them to do. Now, before we can begin to grasp the astonishing story of Jesus' resurrection, we need to enter into the experience of these three women that early Sunday morning. We need to feel something of their fear and their bewilderment as they encounter the angel and the overwhelming shock of the news that the one they loved has risen from the dead. Hence my attempt to capture these feelings 
by retelling the story this morning. It's clear that Mark's interested in confirming the facts of what happened at the resurrection, just as he was with Jesus' death. The time, the day, the details of the preparation, the problem of rolling away the stone, the fact that it is moved, the repeated confirmation that the body of Jesus has gone, even the reference to meeting him in Galilee, all of this to demonstrate that Mark intends us to take the resurrection as a historical reality, rooted in a real place, marked on a real calendar. There's no place here for the idea that the resurrection is merely some kind of metaphor, a picture representing new hope, or the disciples' determination to carry on the ministry and message of Jesus after his death. In fact, after the crucifixion, all the disciples are determined to do is to keep their head down. The idea of selling a false resurrection for the cause is completely alien to the New Testament accounts, all of which are fully convinced that these events actually happened, this event on which our faith stands or falls. The resurrection of Christ is such a pivotal event that forever after Sunday, the resurrection day, the Lord's day, became the church's day of worship. And we should note, by the way, that the enemies of the church never denied the claim of the empty tomb. Within a few weeks, the young church will be preaching a message that's squarely based on what actually happened at a time when it could be easily disproved if only their opponents could find a way of doing so. And thus Mark clearly establishes the reality of the empty tomb. He wants us to be sure that it really happened. But that's not enough. The belief that Jesus rose from the dead is of no value unless we understand what it means. If you simply believe that Jesus rose to new life, as amazing as that is, all you have is sort of a happy ending to a sad story. They crucified him, tragic, unjust, horrible, but he rose again, so that's okay. No. The facts of the resurrection are the foundation. But like the women, we need more because this is no mere happy ending. So let's see what happens. Turn with me to Mark 16, starting again at verse 1, where we find three women. Three women. If you're following along in the sermon outline, that should be the first blank uh, there for you this morning. We see there's this strange redundancy in Mark's account. If we go back to chapter 15, starting at verse 40, we'd see in verses 40 and 47 that with this Within a span of just eight lines, Mark records the names of three women who witnessed these events, and he does it three times. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. Now, biblical scholar Richard Baucom says, this is another way Mark is letting us know that he's recording an historical account, not just writing a legend. The repeated names of the women here are source citations. We would call them footnotes. These women must have been alive at the time Mark was writing, or he wouldn't have cited their names repeatedly. By including their names, Mark is telling anyone reading the gospel, if you want to check out the truth of my story, go talk to these three women. They're still alive. They can corroborate everything I've said. So what is it that these women witness? They have brought spices. They're on their way to the tomb to finish the burial rites on Jesus' dead body. And Mark writes, When the Sabbath was passed, 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now something curious is going on. On the third day after Jesus' death, there are no male disciples around. The female disciples appear, and they're bringing along uh, all the spices with which a dead body is customarily anointed. Nobody's expecting a resurrection. Now, if you are Mark, and you're trying to write a credible account, and you have Jesus repeatedly telling his disciples that he would rise on the third day, wouldn't you have had at least one disciple thinking this through after Jesus' death and saying to the others, hey, it's the third day. Maybe we should go take a look at Jesus' tomb. What can it hurt? I mean, that's reasonable. But nobody said that. In fact, they didn't expect a resurrection at all. It didn't even occur to him. In verse 7, the angel had to remind the women, you will see him just as he told you. And if Mark had made up the story, he wouldn't have written it that way. Here's the point. The resurrection was as inconceivable for the disciples, as impossible for them to believe as it is for us today. Granted, their reasons would have been very different from ours. The Greeks didn't believe in resurrection, and the Greek worldview, the afterlife, was a liberation of the soul from the body. So for them, resurrection would never have been part of life after death. For the Jews, some believed in a uh, future general resurrection when the entire world would be renewed, but they had no concept of an individual rising from the dead. The people of Jesus' day were not inclined to believe in resurrection any more than the people of our day. Now, Celsus, who is a Greek philosopher, lived in the second century. He was highly antagonistic to Christianity. He wrote a number of works against it. And one of the arguments went like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know that women are hysterical. That's what he said. And at the time, everybody believed him. And for them, that was a major problem. In ancient societies, women were marginalized. And the testimony of women wasn't given much credence. And we see that actually in the Bible, in the Gospels. Luke 24, we find that it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women uh, with them who told these things about the resurrection to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Even the disciples didn't believe the women at first. But do you see what that means? If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were making up these stories to get their movement off the ground, they would have never written women into the story as the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. The only reason for the presence of women in these accounts is that they really were present and they really reported what they saw. The stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and an angels declare that Jesus is risen. And not only does the gospel present the women as credible witnesses, but the truth of Easter and thus the truth of Christianity depends on it. So we start with some unlikely witnesses 
no disciples, but three women and an angel. You've heard of three men and a baby? We have three women and an angel, verses 5 through 8. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. <coughs> See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now we see here the women in the story are alarmed. In other versions, that word is translated as amazed or shocked. The parallel passage in Luke says they were terrified. And this word that Mark is using here in verse 5, it's a very strong word, not just because they're shocked and not just because they've seen an angel, but they witness God doing something spectacularly supernatural. This is God turning all human expectation upside down. There wasn't a single person on the earth who expected Jesus to rise from the dead that Sunday morning. Anyone can be executed, but not anyone can emerge from the grave a few days later. Now, if you think about it, this is the same fear the disciples felt when they saw Jesus calm the storm in Mark 4. Remember, they were more frightened after the storm than they were in the middle of it, when they thought they were going to drown. Because in that moment, when he calmed the storm, they had a glimpse of God. <coughs> It's the same fear they felt on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark 9 when they saw the Lord Jesus revealed for just a moment in all his divine glory. It's the same fear they felt when they saw him drive a horde of demons out of the man called Legion in Mark 5. It's the same fear they felt when they saw him walk on water in Mark 6. These are great wonders. <laughs> but their overwhelming reaction every time they see God revealed and they see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ is fear. And now these women feel it too. And unless you and I in reading this story feel something of this unsettled disruption, then we've yet to grasp the full meaning of the resurrection. Imagine showing up at a funeral, and the body's not there. And the funeral director tells you, he is risen, he is not here. Hope? Yeah? But also fear, because this isn't what you expect. It'd be easy to read into how these women didn't tell anyone what they'd seen, even after the angels instructed them to. I mean, their world just went tilt. The thoughts and feelings and fears these women had going to the tomb are now mixed with new hope, and it's eclipsing whatever plans they had. And I can't help but wonder if a version of the moment these women had at Jesus' tomb is coming for all of us whose faith is in Christ, a reckoning where all our hopes and fears are met with the reality of the risen Christ. And I look forward to that day. I look forward to that moment when the hopes and fears of all the years 
are met in thee tonight. I mean, can you imagine how these women felt? What they were thinking when they heard those words, He is risen, He is not here. They had come to the tomb expecting to find a dead body. Instead, they hear these words, He is risen, He is not here. Now, truth be told, they shouldn't have been surprised. Repeatedly in Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, I will rise on the third day. He said it in Mark 8, he said it again in Mark 9, and yet again in Mark 10. And as you've seen, Mark's writing is characterized by a great economy of style. His accounts are short and to the point. And so if he quotes Jesus saying something three times, it probably means Jesus was saying this over and over and over again. I will die, but I'll rise on the third day. I will rise on the third day. I will rise on the third day. And our passage concludes with verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The women they leave not in praise or wonder or excitement, they leave in trembling and astonishment. They're too afraid to talk to anybody because what the angel is telling them is too good to be true. In John 20, Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples and says, somebody stole his body. She can't even imagine there's been a resurrection. It's too good to be true. Listen to the angel's message. There's something that's too good to be true in what the angel says. And, and think about it for a moment. You know, Think about angels. Remember, angels are given tasks by God the Father. They're given tasks to do, and when they go to deliver a message, they're not delivering their message. They're delivering the message of the one who sent them. And I think it's reasonable to expect that what the angel says here in Mark 16 is exactly what Jesus told the angel to say. And he says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And that message is too good to be true. And you know, the first person who said that, he is risen, he is not here, no one ever saw him except these women. No one was ever able to question him. He disappeared. So why is Mark saying that? Because Mark wants us to focus not on the faith of the disciples, because <coughs> they didn't have any, not on the faith of the women. They didn't have much either. But he wants us to focus entirely on the power of God manifested in an empty tomb. I mean, just try to imagine it. The camera's focusing on that empty tomb, and then it starts panning out. And that's the start of it. There's this realization of the resurrection, the putting forth of the sovereign, supernatural power of God and raising his son from the dead. And in so doing, he demonstrates the validity of Jesus' divinity, the validity of everything Jesus ever did or said. He assures us of the forgiveness of our sins by faith alone in Christ alone. He promises us a bodily resurrection in the life to come. And he says with absolute certainty, not because it's based on the faith of the women or the faith of the disciples, because it's based on the power of God, that all of this, all of this, is true. The well-known historian David McCullough wrote a book, I think it was back in the 80s, but it has an important lesson for our day. The book is The Johnstown Flood. 
And it's not only a harrowing history of that tragic event, but it's a p powerful historical lesson for our time. The danger of assuming that because people are in positions of responsibility, that they are necessarily behaving responsibly. You see, in the mountains above Johnstown, Pennsylvania, an old earthen dam had been hastily rebuilt to create a lake to create an exclusive summer resort patronized by the tycoons of industrial prosperity, among them Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon. And despite repeated warnings of possible danger, nothing was done about that dam. And so the Johnstown flood of 1889 is still one of the great uh, disasters of American history. It was a tragedy and it became a national scandal. See, after days of torrential rain, with two rivers that met at Johnstown already overflowing their banks and the water rising in the town to unprecedented levels, this poorly maintained earthen dam in the mountains, 14 miles above Johnstown, broke and it, set, it sent 20 million tons of water in a concentrated wave roaring down the valley, sweeping entire villages off the face of the earth before falling on Johnstown. It has been calculated with the force of Niagara Falls. In a few moments, homes, churches, factories, stores, trees, animals, locomotives, were all swept away by this roaring wall of water. Children were swept away in front of their parents. Husbands were torn from the arms of their wives. And the richly textured prose of David McCullough gives us a typical passage. And there we read. He writes, How the two women, each with a child ever got to the third floor as fast as they did was something they were never able to quite figure out. Once there, they went to the front window, opened it, and looked out into the street. Gertrude described the scene as looking like the day of judgment I had seen as a little girl in Bible histories, with crowds of people running, screaming, dragging children, struggling to keep their feet in the water. Her father, meanwhile, had reached dry land on the hill and turning around saw no signs of the rest of his family among the faces rushing past him, the two women in Gertrude. He grabbed a hold of a big butcher boy named Kurtz, gave him the baby and told him to watch out for the girls and started back to the house. But he'd only gone a short way when he saw the wave almost on top of him, demolishing everything and he knew he would never make it. There was a split second of indecision, then he turned back to the hill, running with all his might as the water surged along the street behind him. In a few seconds, fighting the current around him that kept getting deeper and faster every second, he reached the hillside just as the wave pounded by below. And looking behind, he saw his house rock back and forth, then lunge sideways, topple over, and disappear. In a moment, the daily routine was shattered and thousands of people all at once came face to face with the terrifying reality of death. More than 2,200 people died. Many thousands more carried the terror of that day with them for the rest of their lives. The reality of death, the value of life, the, the tragedy of death, the hunger to live, 
all that burns in the human heart. All of this was discovered suddenly at Johnstown that day. Those very same things, and I mean the very same things, are realized with terrible power at that empty tomb on a Sunday morning. It's always so whenever the realities of life and death are forced into our consciousness. One weeps at the greatest conceivable news and then trembles at what might, what might have been. And what the resurrection of the Son of God means is that the meaning of life is not found in the daily routine. The great issue of human existence is just what we've always known it to be, the reality of death and the possibility of life beyond the grave. We know that, but we don't admit it because we're afraid. We must die, and we can't bear to think about it, so we don't. But the reality isn't altered by refusing to face it. We will die, whether suddenly in a terrible flash flood, or in our beds of some terminal disease, or alone in the ICU wasting away from the coronavirus. In the last analysis, it just doesn't matter. We all must die, but we don't want to die. The fact that we hardly ever think about death, and certainly not our own death, as certain as it is, is the best evidence for just how much we don't want to die. We want to live. But can we escape death? Is it possible to conquer death? Is there a way to live on after death? Those are the great, great questions of human existence. And the fact that we think so little about them is an indication of just how profoundly they bother us. If we have no answer, we won't ask the question. The women at Jesus' grave that first Easter morning were the first people to actually see the reality of eternal life break out upon the world. And it shattered them. It terrified them. Eventually, of course, it would fill them with unspeakable joy. But at first, it frightened them. They ran away from the tomb. They were afraid of what they'd encountered. Something so tremendous, something erupting into our life from another world, something so powerful as to conquer our greatest enemy. All of this was more than they could manage at that moment. Could it be true? They were afraid even to hope. All the fears of death they had ever felt deep within themselves, all the fears they had kept at bay all their lives, finally, unbidden, rush into their hearts. And we have those same fears. You know, we still suffer. We still deal with disappointment. Our dreams are still crushed. How do we face failing bodies? How do we face wasting away from disease? How do we face letting go of someone we love just as they slip away from us? How do we deal with the loss of jobs and the loss of income? Those things hurt. Those things are deep wounds for us. Those things spell a loss for us. We can't just blink our eyes and pretend they don't exist. That pain is real. <coughs> and it's more real today. We're living in the days of a global pandemic. So the pain's probably going to get worse. Probably much worse. But sometimes we need to remember that the pain can feel worse for us because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. We think this breaking body is the only body we're ever going to have. 
We think these relationships are the only relationships we're ever going to have, that this love is the only love we'll ever know, that the wealth we gain is the only wealth we'll ever have. But he is risen. The tomb is empty. Our future is brighter and richer and fairer by far than our present, more than we could ever ask or imagine. Only the resurrection of Jesus makes the promise of new bodies as well as new minds and new hearts, a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, in Revelation 21, the resurrected Jesus stands and shouts, Behold, I am making all things new. That's where the resurrection hits us here and now. It's telling us that this is not all there is and that the story isn't over. And we can live with heartbreak here. We can live with loss here. We can live with deep hurts here in light of there. Because that's the world that's waiting for us. That's the world that the resurrection shouts is still to come. Whatever you do, however you think about these things, don't domesticate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life breaking into the history of this world of death is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And we can hardly begin to fully understand it. It answers the great question of human existence in the most dramatic and decisive way possible. Death is so terrifying we don't want to think about it. The conquest of death is something of such great magnitude that we can scarcely take it in. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is as much a fact as our death will be, and that is far and away the most important thing any person can know. You must face death in order to learn of the conquest of death. So this Easter, screw up your courage, look death in the eye, and then turn and look to the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered death to give you life. Jesus himself once looked death in the eye and said, John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? For it is the good news of Easter. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that makes everything true. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that. And then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you for giving us Easter. Thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Thank you for your great mercy, which has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you for those beautiful words, He is risen, He is not here. And this day, more than any other day, help us to know and believe the remarkable truth that was revealed to us at the empty tomb. Lord, thank you that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said, proving that all his claims are true. Drive these truths deep in our hearts and help us not respond in fear, but in hope. This Easter, in the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. We'll see you next week.